You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Some of you know this, but I recently decided to raise chickens. We used to live downtown in a postage stamp size apartment, and we've moved to a larger property in uh, Crestwood. And despite my not wanting to take care of a yard, got a much larger yard than I wanted. But, you know, I decided to take advantage of this and raise some livestock and do some other things. But we, uh, we got some chickens. They're about two or three months old now. And um, every morning I, I feed them and I check their water. And they freak out as soon as they see me coming. Uh, it's almost like a, it's a mixture of paranoia that, like, maybe I won't feed them, that I somehow forgot about them, sort of mistrust that unless they sort of make a racket, maybe I'll forget them even though um, I come out there and do the same thing every morning. And also there's a sort of pecking order, so they, they're not only freaking out, they're like jumping on top of each other and want you know, to get to the food before the others so selfishly. And this happens, this is the, the thing we do every morning. And I love it, it's a lot of fun actually. Um, now that it's getting colder, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, but the nation of Israel, while in the early days of the wilderness period, were basically behaving like my chickens do every morning uh, with respect to God. Uh, you know, the same way that I come out every morning uh, fearing uh, that there will be no food or water. And this is the, a similar sort of behavior that Israel is displaying in the early stages of their wilderness journey in the desert. In our passage today, they're grumbling over food. But it's, it's not really about food. But here they are grumbling about food where they say, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you, speaking to Moses, have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I love the, the King James translation of meat pots, which is, which is flesh pots. I still don't know what that is. I tried to do a Google search and... Uh, came to no end. It's probably some sort of stew or chili. Um, and even though they were slaves, uh, they seemed to have eaten well in Egypt, uh, and they missed the food that they ate. As a matter of fact, if you read the uh, passages describing the similar situation in Numbers, we get even more specific. Oh, that we had uh, meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. It's a Mediterranean diet. Um, But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. So in spite of their their ungrateful grumbling and uncalled-for paranoia, like my chickens every morning, God rains bread, and not just bread, but bread to the full from heaven for them to eat, to provide them sustenance, but more than they even need. Uh, and not only that, but also quail, so that they might make their flesh pots again. Uh, as Numbers explains it, therefore the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, 
but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. So it's not just just enough, an adequate amount, but to the bread, to the full, and so much quail for a month that it's pouring out of their nostrils, so much so that they might hate it. In other words, these are not mere rations. Uh, It's enough food to live on, and it's also food to the full. And it also includes the the comfort food that they enjoyed so much back in Egypt. Uh, Their daily bread is uh, more like a a French bakery than it is Wonder Bread. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, It's even too much, so much so that they'll get bored of it. And yet they have what they need, and they're not allowed to starve. And remember that these uh, grumblers are the same people who just experienced God exacting justice like not too long ago, I mean, you know, like days ago, exacting justice on the whole nation of Egypt with a series of uh, ten nationwide supernatural calamities that make hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria and the fires of Northern California look small. And also they experienced the drowning of the entire Egyptian army uh, at the Red Sea at the hand of God behind them, uh, and to which, as we uh, talked about last week, they respond rightfully worshiping uh, their God, this God of power, in just the previous chapter, you know, just back in chapter 15. And we skipped over, prior to what we've read today uh, about the um, grumbling with the hunger, we've skipped over uh, a little bit of the end of chapter 15, immediately after that song of Moses. We have a story of bitter water made sweet at Merah, which means bitterness. The water that they came to on the other side of the Red Sea to drink was too bitter to drink. And so this is the first time that they grumble, saying, What shall we drink? And God strangely instructs Moses to throw a log in the water, and by doing that, makes the water sweet. And thus, their bitterness was turned not only potable, but sweet. And if that's not enough, the the final verse of chapter 15, we're told, Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So they've just been taken to an oasis, in the middle of nowhere, like yesterday, you know, like yesterday in Elam. After the water was made sweet, they're taken to a place of abundance, abundant water that doesn't need to be sweetened. It's coming out of these 12 springs. And so what I'm trying to get across is in the immediate memory of these very people, uh, is God uh, demonstrating his power, God demonstrating his favor for these people who don't deserve it, and God demonstrating his ability to provide for them supernaturally. Yet Israel proves time and again to be like my chickens every morning, clamoring and complaining and competing while God is continually sovereign and gracious in their lives. As Moses said in chapter 15 to them when they were crossing the Red Sea, they really have no reason to be afraid. They need only to be silent and trust their God who continues to provide for them. These are the the basic themes of these passages at the beginning of their 40 years in the wilderness, in the desert. Uh, When they were at uh, Merah, as I just explained in chapter 15, the Lord told them, If you will diligently listen to my voice, the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians." 
for I am the Lord, your healer. In other words, they must listen to him. You know, he's their shepherd. They must listen to him and follow him. That is to obey him and follow him. And if they do so, they'll, uh, they'll be blessed. And not only blessed, but they'll be secure. They have security. They may trust their God. And in our passage today, we learn some similar things about God. Moses and Aaron explained with respect to the food, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. In other words, the, the provision, the, the manna coming from heaven and the quails to eat the meat pots, uh, reassure them about what has just happened. All that stuff that I explained to you that happened back in the previous uh, ten chapters or so. And uh, God is keen uh, for them to understand also his glory. That is, his true nature. In every way, his power, his wisdom, his graciousness, his worth, his kingship, uh, his, uh, his, his need to be worshipped. And uh, God himself later emphasizes all this when he says, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Once again, they must learn to trust Yahweh their Lord, that he is good, that he is true, that he is all-powerful, and he's for them, that he's not against them, and that he will not let them starve, that he will give them what they need. Yet they will not learn this overnight, unfortunately. It's going to take a very long time. As we've said the past several weeks, Exodus is pregnant with parallels uh, to Jesus Christ and the Christian life. And so here also, everything that I've just said, everything is true for Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's also true for us Christians, the, the people of God now, the new Israel. Friends, the greatest exodus of all time did not happen at the Red Sea. It happened when the word of God became man and lived the life we could not live for us and died a death on our behalf to wash away all of our unrighteousness and then rose from the dead conquering death, affirming the efficacy of his work on the cross and becoming the first human to come back to life for eternal life so that we might follow and this man is now in heaven, securing all of our promises that he has made for us. And it will be made fully known when he comes back again in his second coming that we are the children of God. And there is an inheritance prom promised to us in heaven that is for us to take. Meanwhile, we live here and now. We know all that. Just as Israel knew that they were headed to a promised land and had to make their way through the wilderness, we live here and now. We live in a, a world of natural disasters, of job loss, of divorce, adultery, addiction, abuse, murder, theft, passive aggression, debt, payday lenders, repossession, and persecution and isolation for what we believe in the Christian faith. In other words, this uh, life for the believing Christian is a wilderness period. And the people of God living in the wilderness are apt to complain and lose faith. Yet we must be reassured. 
we must be reassured who our God is and what he does for us. This is why Jesus Christ, when he was teaching his disciples to pray, included in the prayer that he taught for them, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Provide for our everyday needs, even the mundane needs. Amidst everything else, he gave us reassurance about the bare necessities, the bare necessities of life. When he said, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? We must depend on him for every single thing that is material, you know, our daily bread, material, spiritual, emotional, and otherwise. I once went on a retreat uh, to a Catholic retreat center in uh, Pennsylvania. I forget what it's called, but, you know, often these places, just as our church does, they have like a gift shop or a bookstore, and most of the stuff there was, you know, worthless totems and trinkets, you know. But there was one book on a shelf that I was attracted to by a man who was buried in their, their cemetery there. Uh, and so I picked this up and bought it. It's by a guy named Walter Chizek, who was a Jesuit priest. Uh, the book's called He Leadeth Me, you know, from Psalm 23, He Leadeth Me. Um, he talks about, this is a book about a man who was a, a Jesuit Catholic priest who was captured by Russia during World War II and, um, um, for the charge of being a, a Vatican spy. <laughs> Do you think the Vatican has spies? For being a Roman spy, right, uh, during World War II. And after a, a period, after he's arrested and taken to, um, to Russia, to Moscow, um, I'm going to read to you some readings from a chapter that follows months of torture and interrogation that he endured. And at the end of this, he falsely confesses to the crimes that he's accused of that he did not commit, just to get it over with, you know, to move on from all the torture. I mean, it's very, like, Orwellian sort of torture scene, like 1984, for, for years going through this. And so after all that time of going through the torture and confessing to these crimes that he, he did not commit, we pick up here and he says... And he's, he, he thinks now that what's, what's going to happen, he's going to be taken from Moscow to Siberia to work in the labor camps uh, for years. And, and based on that, he says, at least I thought the torture of interrogations is over. I even looked forward to Siberia and hard labor. Physical suffering had merely to be endured. It entailed no shame or guilt. I longed for the day when I would leave this prison and set out for the labor camps. It would be a fresh start, a new life. Then perhaps I could forget my mistakes and my weaknesses and begin again a more faithful service of God. But it was not to be. There were to be four more years of interrogations and testing in Lubyanka before the Lord was finished tampering and purifying my soul. It was not enough for me to understand that the experience of Lubyanka was designed by God to purge me of my dependence upon self 
and to lead me to reliance only upon him. Understanding of itself does not lead to practice or accomplishment. And then skipping ahead to the end of this chapter, after those four years, basically what they do is they convince him to be a, a, a reverse spy for the Russians, to place him in Rome as a priest like he is, to be a spy in the Vatican. And he agrees to this. I would be part of a team, and there would be other information I would be asked to pass along, other details I would be expected to provide for transmission back to Moscow. Should I fail to do so? Should I betray this trust? Those with whom I worked would see to my speedy execution. Before I left for Rome, there would be a month's training in certain techniques of espionage that I would probably need in Rome. Through all this, I remained at peace, where before the notion of such cooperation would have upset and tormented me, I felt no such distress any longer. If these things were to be, then they were to be, for a purpose God alone knew. If they were not to be, then they would never happen. My confidence in his will and his providence was absolute. I knew I had only to follow the promptings of his grace. I was sure, completely sure, that when a moment of decision came, he would lead me on the right path. And so it happened. When at the last, the interrogator asked me to sign an agreement covering the Roman business, that is the espionage in the Vatican, I just refused. I had not thought of doing, it, doing so in advance. In fact, I had simply gone along with everything up to that point. But suddenly, it seemed the only thing to do, and I did it. He became violently angry and threatened me with immediate execution. I felt no fear at all. I think I smiled. I knew that I had won. When he called for the guards to lead me away, and I had no assurance but that they were leading me before a firing squad, I went with them as if they were so many ministers of grace. I felt his presence in the moment, and I knew it drew me toward a future of his design and purpose. I wished for nothing more. And then the very beginning of the next chapter, I left Lubyanka, as it turned out, not to face a firing squad, but to begin the long journey from Moscow to Siberia. And I was overjoyed. He would go on to serve basically as a slave for dozens of years. This is just one example of what a wilderness journey for a Christian might look like. And what happens when we put our trust in God, even in the face of great, great evil? Today, two families, including my own, uh, will baptize their young sons. We baptize uh, children in our tradition, uh, not because we vainly believe that the baptism alone causes regeneration, yet we repent on the child's behalf. It marks the child as a member of a Christian household. And we will promise to raise the child in the faith. This isn't uh, just about teaching camp songs and uh, perfunctory prayers before bedtime. Today we make a promise that no matter uh, how bad things get, we will keep the faith in our household, including these young children. We could be subjecting our, our children to uh, looking quite strange to the world. Increasingly, as a matter of fact, Christianity is losing popularity in the West. I mean, just think of World War II, what was happening in Russia, in Germany, where Christianity used to rule the day. Christianity is 
likewise losing popularity in the West. And this could mean that things could get quite uncomfortable for us in the future. And yet we allow uh, our children uh, to be baptized so that they might stand in the truth of this faith. No matter how bad things get, whatever uh, we lose in, in this earthly life, whatever possessions, whatever relationships, whatever finances, whatever we lose in this earthly life pales in comparison to what will be gained in the next. So if for whatever reason, let me just talk to you right now, to you. For whatever reason, there's some, if there's something standing in the way uh, between you and faith, maybe you like a lot of things about the church, about Christianity and Jesus Christ, yet you uh, know that believing in this stuff really and truly entails all that I've just said. That basically being a disciple of Jesus means being a martyr, if it takes that. I say to you, be not afraid. The Lord will provide. They may take even your earthly life, but they will never be able to take away your hope as a child of God. Thus make a decision right now to say, Amen, I will, by God's grace. And if you've forgotten this truth, recommit your faith to him again today. Stop grumbling. Stop being like my chickens and start trusting your master. Repent again today and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, as Zach said, today is the 500th Reformation Sunday, marking the 500th anniversary of what Martin Luther did so long ago. Uh, there's something from the Reformation period called the five solas, which is Latin for alone, uh, theological statements on which to put our trust. And I bid you to put your trust on these things alone and not on any other strength of the world. Scripture alone, the Bible alone is our highest authority. Faith alone, we are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Grace alone, we are saved by the grace of God alone. Christ alone, Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. To the glory of God alone, we live for the glory of God alone. That final point is uh, an important one today, and I'll just end with this note. As Moses and Aaron said in Exodus 16 that we read today, in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. See it now. See it now. No one else deserves honor and praise and majesty and worship. No other person or thing or idea deserves our trust. Placing hope in anything else in this life is futile. So give glory to God alone. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.